Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony occupies a strange place in modern orchestral history. Few symphonies since the First World War have entered the standard repertory, but this one has achieved the status of a classical chestnut to be played almost as often as familiar symphonies by Brahms or Tchaikovsky. On the other hand, few orchestral pieces on this scale have been subjected to so much critical cud-chewing. Many commentators, especially of the loftier sort, have no time for it. I've heard it called insufferably vulgar, empty and bombastic, regurgitated mala, and other unflattering names. And then there's the famous question of the piece's politics, and forgive me if you've heard this story many times. In 1936, Shostakovich was publicly attacked and his music vilified. This was a high point of the Stalinist terror, and there's little doubt the composer's life was in danger. Certainly, his career in his own country seemed destroyed. Then, the next year, he wrote this symphony, and when it appeared, someone had given it a title, rich with contradictory ironies, a Soviet artist's creative reply to just criticism. From the beginning, this creative reply was understood in different ways by different people. For some, it was a triumph of socialist realism and Stalinist aesthetics, art as propaganda. For others, it was the very opposite. It was a requiem, a liturgy of grief that only music could make public for the endless stream of Stalin's victims. In fact, as I think will become clear, that's a crucial quality of this symphony. It is ambiguous, and certainly one reason for that, though not the only one, is that in Stalin's time it needed to be ambiguous. This is music that plays on the possibility of meaning different things to different people. And to understand this, to disentangle the different clues and signs that make this ambiguity, we need to start at the end. Because the most notorious of these clues are to be found in the last movement of the symphony. The tub-thumping march has died away, and high strings appear with a gently rocking accompaniment figure. Here Shostakovich really quotes from a piece of his own, a brief song set in words by Pushkin, written only weeks before he began the Fifth Symphony. And it's a song that, even today, most listeners will never have heard. So this clue, when the symphony was first written, was audible only to the composer himself, and at most to a handful of other people. Pushkin's words in this song speak of a painting made by a genius which is brutally defaced by a barbarian artist. But with the years, the barbarian's alien paints peel away and the original picture is revealed once again. Thus, continues Pushkin, delusions or errors disappear from my tormented soul 
and there rise up within it visions of original pure days. It's a description, a rather curious one, of spiritual resurrection and a return to primal innocence. The poem's called Rebirth or Renaissance. And it's that moment of rebirth that we just heard, the rediscovery of innocence at the very end of the song, that Shostakovich quotes so clearly in the symphony. Now, that connection between Shostakovich's Pushkin song and his Fifth Symphony has been demonstrated many times. But what's less obvious is that the connection between the song and the symphony goes much deeper than just that one quotation. Consider again the violin figure at the opening of this quiet middle part of the last movement. This too can be heard in the accompaniment to the song. And this is the moment in the poem when Pushkin tells us that despite the damage done to the painting by the barbarian artist, with the years the alien paints peel away like old fish scales. In the song, and at greater length in the symphony, Shostakovich carefully extends this rocking figure so that it slowly grows into the distinctive moment of rebirth at the end, where the music rises and falls like the accompaniment to a lullaby. You might say a rocking figure like that is not unusual. But as if to emphasize the quotation, Shostakovich leads up to it through a rising scale in the violins, like the inverted commas that you put round a quotation. 
It happens in both the song and the symphony. Here's the song again. And here's the symphony. In fact, the whole of this part of the last movement of the symphony abounds in echoes of the Pushkin song. It seems almost as though Shostakovich was deliberately opening out the apparent simplicities of this tiny 16-bar romance to reveal the huge symphonic possibilities hidden within, which suggests, at the very least, that the song meant a lot to him. And it makes this moment the fulcrum for the whole symphony. Its emotional weight pivots around this moment of rebirth. The drama and tension of the first three movements point us towards this haunting moment in the last, where hushed, troubled music grows into a moment of utter clarity. Here, rebirth is not just a dream, but a waking vision. But the more we look at the rest of the Fifth Symphony, the more we find that the whole work seems to contain echoes of that song. Echoes that finally lead our ears into that clear quotation in the last movement. Among many examples, there's this striking moment from the second movement, the Scherzo.
Behind the sarcastic sound of the woodwind, the violins clearly anticipate the very music of the last movement that we've just been listening to. To my ears, the Fifth Symphony is very much like an enormous echo chamber. Throughout it, tiny ideas and images like these are flung back and forth across the score. This echo chamber functions as a theatre, a theatre of memory, in which we react to each new event in an unpredictable way, depending on what each one of us remembers we've heard before. It's almost at times as though there were two symphonies here, the obvious symphony that we think we're hearing, and behind it, another shadow symphony. Take, just as one example of many, the end of the third slow movement. There's a clear foreshadowing of the whole complex of imagery from the last movement's moment of rebirth. Over the top of this chorus, the first violins take the rising scale idea and climb slowly higher and higher. Eventually, they twist the end of the scale into yet another and instantly recognizable version of the rebirth lullaby. at the end, we even get the same gentle rocking harp. It's extraordinary how many fragmentary images Shostakovich weaves into the music, so that when they all return in the last movement, our ears and minds will certainly react with recognition, even if by that stage we've forgotten exactly where it was we first heard them. That moment of rebirth in the last movement acts like a magnet, drawing scattered material from right across the rest of the symphony, like iron filings, towards that crucial moment, the moment where the meaning of the song begins to reveal the meaning of the symphony. And that haunting moment is haunting because it draws together and connects a whole wealth of music that we've heard before. Of course, this becomes clearer to us once we already know the symphony, when we can see the whole form spread out in front of us. It's not what we hear the first time that we listen. The symphony opens with very different music.
That's an astonishingly rich lump of music with which to open a symphony, abounding in different ideas, each ripe with possibilities. It opens with a gambit that Shostakovich used several times elsewhere, what seems like a scrap of distorted counterpoint, almost evoking Bach. It's a close canon between the cellos and basses and the violins. One way to think of a canon is as an immediate close echo, and that takes us straight back to Shostakovich's echo chamber, now experienced from extremely close to. There's another motif that's introduced right at the opening of the Fifth Symphony, and this one reverberates across the whole piece. In fact, it has immense consequences for the rest of the work. Take one of the smallest and apparently most insignificant details of that violin melody. Try it in a different key. And now compare that to the march theme in the last movement. That's an extraordinary example of Shostakovich's ability to hear long-term connections in a huge musical structure. It's as though he's taken his melody and broken it into different fragments, which he then throws with almost reckless abandon across the whole symphony. It's the exact opposite process to what he does when he gathers the Pushkin fragments into the direct quotation at the end of the symphony. That process is drawing material inwards. This process is scattering material outwards. And that's even clearer with what happens to the opening phrase of this violin melody. Its next appearance is coloured with the strange and ungainly sound of four low horns playing in unison. Shostakovich brilliantly adds to the oddness of the sound by accompanying the horns with a piano. It makes it sound as if the idea is not really developing, it's just being repeated in a twisted, distorted form. In bars, the same idea has taken on yet another shape in the woodwind.
soon there's another grotesque moment when the trumpets take up the idea. And an idea which started as a serious lyrical theme turns into a kind of Red Army march. This version of the theme drives towards the movement's almost cinematic climax. Shostakovich piles on the melodrama even more by bringing back his cannon from the very opening, and that idea of a close reverberating echo is given its most spectacular treatment. What Shostakovich writes at this point becomes so graphic and melodramatic that it's almost impossible not to hear extra musical images in this marching music. The style here is close to that of 1930s newsreel scores. Marches, fragments of fugues and cannons, and familiar turns of phrase are piled on top of one another to make a sound that's almost deafening.
After that, the music falls away to the end of the movement, where Shostakovich stays a while, still lingering over broken fragments of the same melodies. At this point, you might think that the composer had exhausted all the possibilities of these ideas, but the second movement continues to use the same fragments that were scattered across the first movement. It's not so easy to spot at first, because this music seems so different. It's a galumphing scherzo, heavily and deliberately indebted to Mahler, but you can hear the connection if you start by slowing down the opening of this movement. That's yet another echo of the same violin melody from the first movement. When the woodwind enter, a few bars later in the second movement, they too are playing with the same idea, starting in almost the same way, but then twisting the line of the music and extending it in new ways. We're still in that same chamber of echoes, although the echoes are here more often hidden than explicit. Within a few bars, that idea turns into a klezmer-like fiddle solo. Many people have identified this as being uncannily reminiscent of Mahler, most notably the second movement of Mahler's Fourth Symphony. bittersweet, ironic spikiness of that music must have been part of what resonated with Shostakovich, and it's instantly recognisable in his second movement. So, if we notice distorted images of Bach behind the first movement, here in this second movement we seem to have an obvious shadow of Mahler. It seems that as well as the echoes and clues that make up the detail of this music, there are massive shadows of the great composers of the past. In the slow movement, the third movement, there are new and different shadows, and there's a very good reason for that. 
At the same time, though, this third movement continues the argument of echoes on the surface of the music. That violin theme from the beginning of the symphony here makes a wonderfully different appearance. After an opening for strings alone, the first flute enters with this version of that theme. In case you think I'm stretching the connection here, listen again to the theme the first time it appears. What Shostakovich has done is turn that minor mode into a major mode. and he shifted the strangely disruptive E-flat in that tune an octave higher to make this flute melody. And in case you still didn't quite believe the connection that he's making here, Shostakovich hides a second flute underneath, playing an even more obvious version of that first movement melody, but this time upside down. But there's another clue to the emotional impact of this third movement. It's an aspect which would have meant much to that audience at the symphony's legendary first performance in Leningrad in 1937. As several people reported, very many listeners on that November evening were reduced to open weeping. And it's clear that what moved them most of all was the sense of the music's immediate relevance to the horrifying plight of the world around them. Soviet society at that time was convulsed by tyranny and by largely unspoken and unspeakable terror. There were few comforts, least of all religion, which was treated with the utmost hostility by the Stalinist regime. Shostakovich, we know, was not himself a religious man, but in the slow movement of this symphony, in a way untypical of his music as a whole, he does refer to religious music. This movement abounds in echoes of chant and of the distinctive sound of Russian Orthodox church harmonies. But more specifically, there seems to be audible within this music the shadowy outline of the Panihida, the Russian Orthodox Requiem chant, a prayer for the dead.
Here, Shostakovich doesn't so much quote the melody as suggest it in a fragmentary way, first in the high strings. And finally, this fragment of chant returns with tremendous force at the movement's climax. It is hardly possible to miss the significance of this almost religious moment, and one can see why it must have affected the audience in Leningrad so overwhelmingly. As one of Shostakovich's friends wrote in her diary the night after the first performance, he has given them an answer, and what an answer! So, there are massive shadows that stand behind this music. Bach in the first movement, Mahler in the second, and Russian Orthodox church music in the third. And we know that the music of the whole symphony is leading us towards that pivotal quotation in the middle section of the last movement, the quotation from the fourth model, the Pushkin song. And that song doesn't just dominate the middle section of that last movement. What about the heavy march music either side of it? Here, too, there are connections with the Pushkin song. The song begins with the words, Hudoznik Varvar, the artist barbarian.
The symphony's finale begins with almost exactly the same notes. It's fascinating in this symphony how Shostakovich keeps drawing the music back to the same small group of ideas, a rocking idea, a scale, a fragment of violin melody, or a simple interval. That's what I meant by calling this piece an echo chamber, a theatre of memory. But what does this strangely referential, allusive, and even elusive way of putting music together actually mean? Shostakovich has often been described as a composer of codes. This seems to me a mistake. The echoes, cross-references, quotations, half-quotations, parodies and imitations that abound on every page of this score, not to mention the presence of a half-hidden Pushkin text, are not codes, but as I suggested at the beginning of this programme, clues. Codes require a key to be decoded, they're used by spies and criminals, and when you crack a code, the meaning's usually simple, one-dimensional. Clues are open. They're there to be found by anyone who looks for them. They're what we all leave behind, down to the smallest speck of dust. You don't crack a clue, you notice it, and you try and understand it, follow its consequences, trace the unfolding of its several possible meanings. In this fifth symphony, Shostakovich builds a formidable musical structure which is held together by a web, a tracery of almost innumerable clues. And the clues and the connections between them may, of course, lead us to make assumptions about the extra-musical significance of the end of this symphony, to try and find an answer as to what it's about beyond the notes, to see whether it has a meaning that can be put into words. After all, and especially after we've heard the moment of rebirth, every idea in this symphony seems to be drawing towards a moment of revelation. You'd have to have ears of stone not to feel that the revelation is likely to be a tragic one. And that moment of revelation is this much-argued-over final blaze of sound, apparently in D major. And this is the moment when the whole echo chamber of the symphony comes to mean so much. 
for by their very nature echoes of fragile things, fleeting, often distorted, and memories are personal and ambiguous. And so this music will always mean different things every time we hear it. I find it curious that so many critics in the past have suggested that it's at this point in the symphony that Shostakovich submitted to the demands of socialist realism, supposedly writing a bombastic ending glorifying Stalin. The true socialist realists are those simplifying souls who for the past 60 years have needlessly wondered and battled about whether this music is meant to be optimistic or pessimistic, who, as it were, leave the music itself out, probably because they're so keen to make the connection between what the music makes them feel and what they think it ought to mean. As was clearly obvious to that Leningrad audience so deeply affected at the work's first performance, this is actually a musical ending in which little is resolved, but much has been revealed. Just as in Pushkin's poem there is a revelation, and not only a revelation, but a rebirth once the barbarian paints have flaked away. And if it was obvious to those who first heard this symphony, it's even more obvious with the hindsight of history that what was reborn was Shostakovich's power and authority as a composer, which is revealed in this symphony in a different way from in almost any music that he'd written before. And the revelation, the rebirth, happens both with the rhetorical power of tragedy and with the underlying force of triumph. We may yearn to resolve this ambiguity, but that's just part of how we listen. For Shostakovich, and especially in that time and in that place, such ambiguity was the very stuff of music. <laughs> 